we're going to continue on in our series. Um, but whenever I think about the concept of personal evangelism, I can't help but to smile and remember a story that I heard told by Chuck Colson. He told at a conference that I attended during the early years of my ministry. And uh, it's a true story involving a Californian by the name of Larry Walters. And just about every major newspaper picked up Larry's tale at that point in time. And in fact, Reader's Digest, I'm told, did a feature article on Larry 31 years ago, just about the time that I was embarking on my pastoral ministry here at Fayette. I heard about this, but it was 37 years ago that I think that it happened. It was actually in the year that I came to Christ, in 1982, that Larry lived on a small little developmental tract of land outside of L.A., and all the houses pretty much looked the same. They had backyards with chain-link fences, and Larry Walter's pastime followed the pattern of everyone else's in that neighborhood. He'd go out on a Saturday afternoon, he'd sit in his lawn chair, and one of the newspaper accounts said that he frequently took a six-pack along with him to pass the time, and I assume they meant Coke. And he would sit there in the sun and enjoy his backyard and his little fenced-in area. One Saturday afternoon, probably after his second six-pack of Coca-Cola, Larry thought his life was getting a little monotonous and boring. So he came up with this brilliant idea. He decided he'd go out, get some balloons, tie them to his lawn chair, and float up about 100 feet or so over his neighborhood and look around and wave to his friends as he floated by their house. He figured he'd take along a BB gun or pellet gun to shoot out the balloon so he could control his altitude. Well, Larry was a truck driver. He was not a physicist or an engineer. So he went out and he bought himself 45 weather balloons. This is a true story, by the way. And he brought them back, went into his kitchen, made himself a peanut butter sandwich, got an extra six-pack of Coke and went out and got a bunch of his friends, filled the 45 balloons with helium, tied them to the lawn chair while his friends held him down, and his plan was to go up about 100 feet with the BB gun on his lap. Well, when they let him go, he didn't go up to 100 feet. He ended up shooting up to like 15,000 feet, and he was never really able to shoot out those weather balloons because he had a white-knuckle grip on that lawn chair so tight he couldn't do anything. He was first spotted by a DC-10 Continental Airline pilot who immediately radioed the tower that he had just passed a lawn chair. Well, the pilot was ordered to land immediately. And actually, it was reported that for four hours, air traffic was delayed coming into LAX while helicopters went up. This was a full-on emergency. Eventually, it was dusk and... Searchlights were all going, and they were trying to bring this fellow down, and all Larry could do was grip the sides of the chair. Eventually, he did shoot out a few and ended up floating down. He got tangled up in some power lines, which luckily didn't kill him, and he was able to climb down. It was an unforgettable scene when he finally landed, stumbled off the lawn chair, eyes as big as saucers. News crew standing there waiting for him with lights flashing and cameras ready, and they shoved a microphone in his face, and they asked him three questions. Were you scared? And he answered, yep. Would you do it again? Nope. Why'd you do it in the first place? Listen to Larry's answer. Well, said Larry, you can't just sit there. You can't just sit there. Friends, when it comes to personal evangelism, Larry's answer is truly instructive. You and I just can't sit there or sit here. Yes, evangelism may be scary for some of us. You may have tried it a couple of times and feel like you don't want to do it again. Nope. But there are people, lots and lots of people, people with whom you are well acquainted, people that you love, others you don't even know but have value in God's eyes, heartbeats that beats like yours and mine, people just like you and me that are going into a Christless eternity. And trust me on this, I saw plenty of them this weekend 
at this funeral. How can we just sit here and look on as if it doesn't matter? It does matter. Matters a lot. You can't just sit here. It's an Old Testament passage of Scripture that often reminds me of this extreme importance of sharing my faith. In fact, I just read it again the other day in my devotional time, and it flooded me with all these kinds of thoughts and, and uh, memories and conviction at the same time. Although the context doesn't refer to communicating the gospel of Christ per se, the personal and spiritual application here is unmistakable and absolutely compelling. So if you have your Bibles, turn uh, to 2 Kings chapter 7 for a moment. 2 Kings chapter 7. And um, I'll give you the context, the Syrian king Ben-Hadad uh, determined that he was going to destroy Samaria, the capital of the northern kingdom of Israel, after the split occurred after Solomon's death. Okay, the kingdom was split. So Ben-Hadad, the Syrian king, besieged the city, and as the siege went on, the situation of the surrounding Israelites became desperate. So severe was the famine that not only were unclean animals going for top dollar, but the people had actually stooped to cannibalism. This was all part of God's judgment on the spiritually rebellious nation. So let me just throw this in as a sideline here. God is a God of love, but he's also a God of wrath. And he punishes spiritually rebellious nations and people. Basically, Christ made the way possible so that would never happen again. However, God promised through the prophet Elisha to provide deliverance courtesy of the Syrian army, which, believe it or not, would leave their rich supplies behind while fleeing from an army that did not exist. Okay? Look at verse 3. Now there were four leprous men at the entrance of the gate, and they said to one another, Why do we sit here until we die? If we say we will enter the city, then the famine is in the city, and we will die there. If we sit here, we will die also. Now therefore come and let us go over to the camp of the Arameans. If they spare us, we will live. If they kill us, we will but die. In other words, we got nothing to lose. We're going to die anyway. They arose at twilight to go to the camp of the Arameans. And when they came to the outskirts of the camp of the Arameans, behold, there was no one there. For the Lord had caused the army of the Arameans to hear the sound of chariots and a sound of horses, even the sound of a great army, so that they said to one another, Behold, the king of Israel has hired against us the kings of the Hittites and the kings of the Egyptians to come upon us. Therefore they arose and they fled in the twilight and left their tents and their horses and their donkeys, even the camp, just as it was, and fled for their life. Amazing. And when these lepers came to the outskirts of the camp, they entered one tent and ate and drank, and they carried from there silver and gold and clothes and went and hid them. And they returned and entered another tent, and they carried from there also, and they went and hid them. And then they said to one another, watch this, we are not doing right. This day is a day of good news. But we are keeping silent. If we wait until morning light, punishment will overtake us. Now therefore, come, let us go and tell the king's household. In other words, what these lepers were saying was, we can't just sit here. And then later again, after they discovered the great news of God's deliverance in verse 9, they say it again. We can't just sit here. We're doing wrong by keeping silent. 
Come, let us go and tell the king's household. Theologian John C. Whitcomb said this. He said, the analogy to our own situation here in this text is obvious. God has utterly routed our great enemy through the work of Jesus, his son. But if we who have made the great discovery fail to share it with those who are dying in their sins, we will be held accountable to God. 2 Corinthians 5 says that we're ambassadors for Christ. Amen? This responsibility we bear is far greater than that of the four lepers in the Old Testament passage. Addressing a group of theology students, C.S. Lewis said it plainly. He said, woe to you if you do not evangelize. If you and I are not becoming contagious Christians, the point is so clear. We are not doing right. This is a day of good news. What is gospel? What does the word gospel mean? Good news. This is a day of good news, but we are keeping silent. Now, therefore, come, let us go and tell the king's household. As I said last time, it seems to me that the essential nature of the problem of why we do not share the gospel with those around us is not rooted in the lack of our individual ability, but rather in our lack of personal repentance. We've been given the power to become contagious Christians by the gift of the Holy Spirit, which is in us if we're saved. We simply haven't considered it important enough to radically pursue. Our Christianity becomes contagious, as we said last time, when our God-given style of evangelism or, or communication of spiritual good news begins to emerge. God wants you to be contagious. How has he designed you? That's the question. Last week I introduced you to the fact that every one of us have been shaped by God and empowered by the Holy Spirit to share the gospel with others in a unique way, according to the way God wired you up, according to the way he designed you, using your personality and your gifts and your passions, etc. We began to look at a few different evangelistic style modeled in scriptures, which hopefully will help us to identify the way that we relate and communicate with other people. And we began to look at six basic styles of evangelism that are representative of most people and also some typical examples we find for them in scripture. So last time we looked at three of the six. Let me review them briefly. First, the confrontational approach. The biblical model here was Peter in Acts 2. His confrontational style fit his personality very well. He confronted people with the facts about Christ and their need, and the crowds of people by the thousands responded to that uniquely through Peter. Personal characteristics of this style is confidence, assertive attitude, and direct approach. Contemporary examples might include somebody like Franklin Graham or John MacArthur, Ray Comfort. We talked about those as examples. But the spiritual precaution I gave was this. Take great pains to use tact when confronting people with the truth if you have this style. Okay? Last week I asked people to raise their hands who had this style. And some of you did. I won't ask you to do it today, but I'm sure a few of you found out you had this style. Again, take heed to the precaution. 2 Timothy chapter 2 says this, The Lord's bondservant must not be quarrelsome, but be kind to all, able to teach, patient when wronged, with gentleness correcting those who are in opposition, if perhaps God may grant them repentance, leading them to the knowledge of the truth, that they may come to their senses and escape from the snare of the devil, having been held captive by him to do his will. That's your verse if you're a confrontational person. 2 Timothy 2, 24 to 26. The second model was the intellectual approach. Biblical model that we looked at there was Acts chapter 17. That was Paul. Quintessential model of this. Personal characteristics involved here is if you are naturally inquisitive, analytical, and logical, the Holy Spirit can have a field day with you. People like C.S. Lewis, Ravi Zacharias are a couple of people that come to mind with this style. But here's the precaution on this one. Do not substitute giving answers for giving the gospel. 
Your guiding verse should be 1 Peter 3.15, but sanctify Christ as Lord in your hearts, always being ready to make a defense to everyone who asks of you for the hope that is within you, yet with gentleness and respect, right? And then the third one we looked at was the testimonial approach. The model of this was the man that was born blind from birth in John chapter 9 that Jesus healed. When testifying multiple times in front of different groups of people, but mostly the the Pharisees, he focused on one message, the simple explanation of what Christ had done in his life. Okay? So people who use this testimonial approach are usually clear communicators, good storytellers, and especially good listeners. So Johnny Erickson Tata, Lee Strobel would be some you know, well-known contemporary examples of this. Now, here's the precaution for you guys and myself, because I happen to have a little bit of this style in my mix. Be careful to connect your story to their situation. Don't just talk about yourself without relating your experience of Christ to their need, okay? Give them Jesus. Don't just give them your story. Listen to them. Your guiding verse should be a couple of them. Romans 1, 16, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. But here's another one, 2 Corinthians 4, 5, For we do not preach ourselves, but Christ Jesus as Lord and ourselves as your bondservants for Jesus' sake. Okay? All right, now we're going to get into some new stuff. The last three. The interpersonal approach. The interpersonal approach. In a, this is the biblical model I'm going to give you now. In a nutshell, we need to study Matthew, the tax collector. Turn your Bibles to Luke chapter 5 for a moment. Luke chapter 5, beginning in verse 27. After that, he, meaning Jesus, went out and noticed the tax collector named Levi sitting in the tax booth, and he said to him, follow me. And he, meaning Matthew, left everything behind and got up and began to follow Jesus. And Levi then gave a big reception for Jesus in his house, and there was a great crowd of tax collectors and other people. You know, like that? Other people. Those are the other people outside your sphere of reference, mostly. Tax collectors who were reclining at the table with them. Pharisees and their scribes began grumbling at his disciples, saying, why do you eat and drink with the tax collectors and sinners? That's the other people, right? And Jesus answered and said to them, It is not those who are well who need a physician, but those who are sick. I have come not to call the righteous but sinners to repentance. Now, I've preached on this passage in detail before, so I won't go into specifics here, but basically, when Matthew realized that his tax-collecting friends were far from knowing Jesus place where he was before he began to follow Jesus, he came up with a creative way to introduce them to him. He threw a party. That's what Matthew did, right? A Jesus party. A secular party with a spiritual purpose. Matthew's event was likely the first New Testament seeker service ever recorded. Matthew strategically designed this party and opened up his own home just to get his acquaintances to rub shoulders with Jesus and his disciples. I have a roundtable that I go to down in Portland once a month. And uh, last year, we had a new guy that came in, a brand new pastor. He felt God called him to Maine from Texas to plant churches. And this guy was amazing. The Holy Spirit was all over this guy and in him. This, and this is what he did. He was strictly did not want to go to churches 
and talked to people that were already saved. He wanted to go to those who were lost that did not know about Jesus. And so he'd go out on the streets of Portland and he'd invite people to his house for a barbecue. This guy had a whole theology about barbecuing. I couldn't even recite it to you. He had chapter and verse that he would stand at the barbecue and talk to these people that didn't know Jesus. And before you knew it, uh, you just felt that a barbecue was an Old Testament concept <laughs> that had to take place. And this is how he used that platform to lead people to Christ. Amazing. This was Matthew, right? This is what he's doing. He used the contacts that he had made through his former jobs as well as the friendships that he had developed with people as a starting point for the gospel. Friendship gives us one of the highest possibilities of influence in other people's lives. Okay? But you know what happens after we're saved for a few years? We don't have any friends that aren't Christians anymore. That, that well dries up, doesn't it? Shouldn't. Friendship gives us the inroads into people's lives. Matthew caught that right away and he sought to take those relationships in life, in his life, further into the spiritual realm. He genuinely cared about these people and was able to use the vast number of relationships that he had made to go into deeper and, and deeper relationships with them and to introduce people to Jesus Christ so that they might consider his claims and accept them as true and become his committed followers. Isn't that our mission statement? So the personal characteristics of this style is that people who have an interpersonal style are usually connectors. Are you a connector? Because they already exhibit elements of contagiousness by their extensive friend list. These are the guys on Facebook that have like 3,000 friends on their friend list. They probably have a million Instagram followers. This style is usually characterized by warm, fun-loving personality, easily involved in conversational bridge building, and is friendship-oriented. And even as I'm saying this, I've got people's names in this church or that were in this church for a time that are popping into my head. This approach tends to focus primarily on people and their needs more than ideas and verbal instruction. Rather than confrontation or intellectual reasoning or testifying of personal experiences, Matthew's interpersonal approach focused on compassion and on empathy. Someone with this approach usually comes alongside sinners, people just like us, and makes them feel welcome. There's so many people in this society that will never be reached until someone takes the time to build an intimacy bridge with them. And that intimacy bridge leads to trust, which further leads to opportunities to share with them the good news of Christ's unconditional love and forgiveness. Are you a Matthew? How many people do you know whose names are listed in your personal address book or in your contact list? who have never been introduced to Jesus Christ. You go through that contact list on your phone and put a star next to those and make that your hope list. Begin to pray for those people that you might have an opportunity to connect with them. Better yet, connect with them. What are you waiting for? Last week, Dan and I went to visit an old friend who was a pastor down in Liberty, he was one of the first guys I met when I went to Bible college many, many years ago. And uh, he's now dying of a rare form of cancer. And he doesn't have much time left. And uh, he's a pastor. And we went to, uh, to visit with him. But we sat in his house and he could hardly get up to walk, but he could talk. He's sitting there with his Bible on his lap. And he opens up his Bible and he pulls out this piece of paper. I should have put the picture on the screen because I, I had to take a picture of this. He pulls out this piece of paper. It looked like a parchment from the Old Testament. That's how old it was. And it was yellowed and it, it was written on both sides of the paper. And he says, 
I pulled this out the other day again, and I cannot believe the people that Jesus is bringing to my doorstep on this list. This is a list that he made, much like the hope list I gave you the first time we started preaching on this series. These are names on this paper that he has been praying for people since he got saved himself. And every time someone comes to Christ, he circles it. And there were all kinds of circles on the page, but there were some that were not circled. And he said, he just testified to us. He must have testified to, what, a half dozen or more people that in the last year, God has brought back to him that he's led to Christ because of the cancer that he has. That all these years of laying down prayer, that God has finally brought them to him and they were ready to receive Jesus. And God is using this cancer in his life because he's not afraid. He says, I'm not afraid to go. I don't want, I hope he comes first because I don't want to go through the process. But I know where I'm going. And that is a testimony to the people that he's been praying for. What an amazing thing. I just walked out of there like, remember last week I talked about take off your shoes, you're on holy ground? That's what I felt like. Then I went home and wallowed in my self-pity the whole time. <laughs> I mean, amazing what God can do and will do. Steve's a connector. Contemporary examples of that? Steve. That's all you need to know. Spiritual cautions on this, though. If you have this particular style of evangelism, here's a word of caution. Don't value your friendships over telling the truth. Because if you're all worried about whether your friend's going to leave you or not, if you confront them with their sin or you tell them about Jesus, you're placing your friendship over Jesus. So be careful about that. Your friendships are important, but their soul's more important. So don't get, and there are many people on that list that Steve showed us, I'm sure, that parted ways with him 20, 30 years ago because he shared the gospel with them. And now God is bringing them back. And they know who to go to for the answers now. So don't get so involved in the process of building relationships and friendships that you forget the ultimate goal, which is bringing people to know Jesus Christ. The downside of this style is that people often avoid challenging their friends. Giving the gospel often means challenging a whole person's direction in their life. And that may cause some friction in the relationship. We need to be directed by verses like this if, if we have this particular style. 2 Corinthians 5, 17, very familiar verse. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. Old things are passed away. Behold, new things have come, right? And then 1 Timothy chapter 1, verses 15 and 16 says, this is a trustworthy saying and everyone should accept it, that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners and I am the worst of all. But God had mercy on me so that Christ Jesus could use me as a prime example of his great patience with even the worst of sinners. Then others will realize that they too can believe in him and receive eternal life. That pretty much sums up exactly what Steve was telling us. I like the way the message puts that. Let me just take the time to read it to you. Those verses, 1 Timothy 1, 15 and 16, this is how it's paraphrased. Here's a word you can take to heart and depend on. Jesus Christ came into the world to save sinners. I'm proof, public sinner number one, of someone who could never have made it apart from sheer mercy. And now he shows me off evidence of his endless patience to those who are right on the edge of trusting him forever. Someone has said that our job is to go about the day in a way that allows evangelism to happen. I like that. I really like that. Are you doing that? So what style do you have so far? Are you confrontational, intellectual, testimonial, or interpersonal? You know, knowing how you best communicate goes a long way in reducing the risk and increasing the effectiveness of sharing your faith. It enables us to become contagious and infectious. 
At this point, some of you may not be buying this whole style of evangelism thing. But I can tell you that it does work. It works. In fact, it, even, it was even working at the funeral home this weekend. I met this guy, my cousin's, one of his best friends. Big guy. Weightlifter. He used to compete in weightlifting competitions. His name was Willie. My cousin told him I was a Baptist minister. Willie brightened right up. I'm a Southern Baptist. He says, I'm working on your cousin. I said, well, let's work on him. I keep on working on him. And he says, yeah, I keep telling him. My cousin's in the background. He's going, I'm not a very religious guy. I'm not a very religious guy at all. And both of us at the same time said, it's not about religion. And I said, it's about a relationship. And then this guy started taking over. And and it was like a tag team match right there in in the funeral home. It ended real quick because there were a lot of people around. But the point is, is that two different styles working together. And I think that's what makes people really fear evangelism. We always think that we have to be a lone wolf out there on our own doing it all by ourselves. But Jesus didn't send his disciples out that way, did he? He sent them out two by two. And I find it way more inspiring, exhilarating, and and successful when you approach this kind of thing with another person that compliments you. Do it with your spouse, because chances are she or he has a very different style than you do. And you can work together for the sake of the gospel. You see, you may not like some people's approach to evangelism. You may not like their style. But I can assure you of this, that God is more pleased with the way they do it than with the way that you and I don't. So what's your style? Identify it. Practice it. Then we have the invitational approach. The invitational approach. How many of you had this style after filling out the questionnaire? Anybody have the invitational approach? Raise your hand. Here's the biblical model. A classic biblical example of this style is found in John chapter 4. John chapter 4. Jesus took the opportunity to lead a Samaritan woman of questionable reputation to faith in him and then watched as she immediately did what his disciples were unwilling to do. It's uncanny that the people that God uses to accomplish his work, isn't it? A blind man, a tax-collecting Jewish traitor, and now this Samaritan woman. God seems to delight in using earthly ragamuffins to accomplish heavenly feats, doesn't he? This woman of Sychar here in John chapter 4 had three strikes working against her already. She was a woman, she was a Samaritan, and she had an immoral lifestyle. Those three things in that society were big time strikes against her. Yet Christ changed her heart and she became, by the end of this chapter, a harvest producing evangelist for him. John chapter 4, look at verse 28. So the woman left her water pot and went into the city. This is after all this conversation with Jesus. Where Jesus reveals to her that he's the Messiah. Okay? Tells her all kinds of things about her. Answers her questions on theology, about worship. So then, she leaves her water pot, went into the city, and said to the men... Come see a man who told me all the things that I have done. This is not the Christ, is it? And they went out of the city and they were coming to him. Verse 39. From that city, many of the Samaritans believed in him because of the word of the woman who testified. He told me all the things that I have done. Do you see that? Again, she did exactly what the opening line of our church mission and purpose statement describes. She introduced people to Jesus Christ and then invited them to become his committed follower. And they did. Her goal was not so much to confront them. It wasn't so much to reason with them intellectually or challenge them with the truth. 
as it was to get them to come and see and hear Jesus for themselves. She was invitational. She invited people. Verse 42. And they were saying to the woman, it is no longer because of what you said that we believe, for we have heard for ourselves and know that this one is indeed the Savior of the world. But had she not invited them, they probably never would have got there, right? Some people have the unique ability and personality to get people to be interested in whatever it is they're doing. You know people like that? It doesn't matter what it is, but the way they talk about it, you're like interested in it. If you're that kind of person, get them interested in Jesus, okay? Invite them to church events, concerts, small groups, etc. Some people just have a knack for inviting people to places and they accept, even total strangers. There are people in this church that have this gift. I know that you do. Laurel Coleman, some of you remember her. She used to operate like that. Her husband, Steve, never knew who was coming home to dinner on any given occasion. Could have been a homeless person. Nobody, he never knew. You know what? But he had made it a point to just always be ready. Okay. He didn't have that gift, but she did. Having that spiritual gift of hospitality often helps a great deal in this regard. But you know, sometimes all people need to consider the the claims of Jesus Christ is just a simple, friendly invitation. Don't ever minimize the effect one simple invite can have on someone's eternal destiny. National Survey in America by the Barna Research Group found that one out of four unchurched people would gladly attend church if a friend would only extend an invitation. Just invite them. Most people are just waiting to be invited to something. Jesus made a habit of inviting people to accompany him. There must be something to it, right? I think Jesus had this gift. Jesus had all the gifts. (laughs) Come follow me. And they dropped everything and followed him, right? Personal characteristics in this gift is being hospitable, relational, persuasive the contemporary examples of this well sometimes you know what it's difficult to find an upfront well-known example of this style you know why because people who approach with this approach tend to stay in the background they don't want the limelight Andrew Peter's brother for example exhibited this style on at least one recorded occasion in John chapter 1 Verse 35, John 1, verse 35, again the next day John was standing with two of his disciples and he looked at Jesus as he walked and said, behold, the Lamb of God. And the two disciples heard him speak and they followed Jesus. And Jesus turned and saw them following and said to them, what do you seek? And they said to him, Rabbi, which translated means teacher, where are you staying? And he said to them, come and you will see. So they came and saw where he was staying, and they stayed with him that day, for it was about the tenth hour. One of the two who heard John speak and followed him was Andrew, Simon Peter's brother. He found first his own brother Simon and said to him, we have found the Messiah, which translated means to Christ. Verse 42, he brought him to Jesus. Note that simple statement in verse 42. He brought him to Jesus. Soon as Andrew found Christ, look at what he says, what it says in verse 40. One of the two who heard John speak and followed Christ was Andrew. The first thing he did was he found his brother and he invited him to come to Jesus and then he brought him to Jesus. Invitational people love to pick up strays. They're usually the ones who fill the seats at events with people they have invited to hear the message of the truth. Ruth Graham was one well-known example of this. If I were to highlight one, when traveling with her husband for a crusade, she would often go into the stores and the businesses of that city 
and specifically invite the workers to attend the crusade. Billy, however, didn't seem to have that same gift as Ruth, that invitational style. That is, of course, unless it was at the end of a message in front of a whole bunch of people, then he'd invite them to come forward. But he didn't have that same invitational style that his wife did. Case in point, Billy once told a story himself of an early time in his ministry when he arrived in a small town. He was preaching at a local church. And wanting to mail a letter, he asked a young boy on the street where the post office was. And the boy had told him where it was, gave him directions. Dr. Graham thanked him and said, quote, If you'll come to the Baptist church this evening, you can hear me telling everyone on how to get to heaven. I don't think I'm going to come, the boy said. Billy said, why? He said, because you don't even know how to get to the post office. <laughs> See, that's a true story. He told it. Now, now, do you know anybody in, in this church, in our church, that has this style or approach, this invitational style? Quite possibly, you and your presence in this room is the direct result of somebody that has this style who invited you to come. But here's the spiritual precaution. Those of you wired up with this style need to be careful not to fall into what has been called the big fisherman approach to evangelism. You may think your job is simply to lure the fish into the aquarium, right, within the reach of the pastor or other people, and then let him reel them in. No, no, no. Jesus said, you follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. Not you follow me and bring them to him who I made a fisher of men. I'll make you a fisher of men. You can't let others do all the talking for you. Yes, you can work in tandem with somebody, but when a push comes to shove, you're the testifier, you're the witness. Each one of us needs to be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks us to give an account of the hope that is within us. Amen? The woman at the well of Sychar not only invited the men of the city to come see a man who told me all the things that I had done, but she also testified that he was the Messiah. Okay? And then they believed it for themselves, it says in John 4. Here's a great guiding verse for you invitational people. 2 Timothy 2, verse 15. Do your best to present yourself to God as one approved, a worker who does not need to be ashamed, accurately handling the word of truth. You need to bone up on your knowledge of the word and how to present it as one of these people too, because you might be called on to give testimony. Don't forget the ultimate goal, which is to bring people into a saving relationship with Jesus Christ. It's not about inviting people to church. Can I say that again? It is not about inviting people to church. That's not evangelism. It may be one step in the process, but evangelism is actually telling people about Jesus and inviting them become his committed followers. Also know that just because you have a primary particular style doesn't mean that God will not put you in a situation in which you will be stretched to use another approach. Don't let your main approach to evangelism become an excuse not to share the gospel unless the climate is just right for you personally. As one author said, we must be able to adapt our presentation to any person so it speaks to his world, right? In other words, a person with a confrontational style may have to work on developing his invitational approach. The testimonial person may have to reason with an intellectual at times. And a person of the intellectual stripe should learn to cultivate a level of comfortability with the final style that we're going to look at right now, and that is the serving style. The serving style, this won't take us long, but... The biblical model is in Acts chapter 9. Acts chapter 9. Beginning in verse 36. Now in Joppa there was a disciple named Tabitha, which translated in Greek is called Dorcas. This woman was abounding with deeds of kindness and charity, which she continually did. And it happened at that time that she fell sick and died. And when they washed her body, they laid it in an upper room. Since Lydda was near Joppa, the disciples, having heard that Peter was there, sent two men to him, imploring him, do not delay in coming to us. 
So Peter arose and went with them, and when he arrived, they brought him into the upper room. And all the widows stood beside him, weeping and showing all the tunics and garments that Dorcas used to make while she was with them. But Peter sent them all out and knelt down and prayed, and turning to the body, he said, Tabitha, arise. And she opened her eyes, and when she saw Peter, she sat up. And he gave her his hand and raised her up, calling the saints and widows, he presented her alive. And it became known all over Joppa, and many believed in the Lord. Well, Dorcas's style was clearly described in verse 36. She was abounding with deeds of kindness and charity, which she continually did. She was well-known and well-loved for her kindness and acts of quiet Christ-likeness. And although the scripture never records any converts made directly by Dorcas, her service approach modeled Christ's love and his heart of unconditional love to the community around her. So when she died, God led Peter to pray over her and put her back into service by raising her from the dead. People with this style of evangelism point people to Jesus and away from themselves by humbly serving them in his name. These people don't serve instead of evangelizing them. Rather, they evangelize through their service, okay? That's what shoulder to shoulder is all about. It's the platform by which they gain an opportunity to testify to Christ's grace. Because they're so selfless, they open doors for the gospel that would otherwise go unopened. Serving people touches the lives of others in a way that disarms them. It opens up opportunities to speak about the love of Christ with those who would be difficult to reach any other way. People with this style notice needs that you and I may never see. They find it easy to serve others because that's the way that God built them. The gift of helps is usually coupled with this. You know people in this church that have these gifts. Personal characteristics here, they are other-centered, they are humble, patient. Contemporary example that comes to mind, Mother Teresa, right? When she was alive, she modeled this approach exclusively. Now, I know some of you have this style because I've encountered it. I've been the recipient of it. Hey, you may not have the knowledge of a Paul or the courage of a Peter or the connections of a Matthew, the personality of a Samaritan woman or the miraculous experience of a blind man, but you're incredible at fixing cars or providing meals or dropping whatever you're doing and meeting with someone's needs no matter what time of day it is or or night. Let God use that quality to bring people to Jesus. Spiritual precautions here, pretty simple. Remember that actions are not substitutes for words. Okay? Actions are not substitutes for words. The scripture is very clear that we must verbally tell people about Jesus Christ. Your servant heart is there because Christ lives in you. Let them not only see him in your actions, but hear of him in your conversation. Again, your guiding verses should be Romans chapter 10, verses 14 and 17. How then will they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him of whom they have never heard? How are they to hear without someone preaching? So faith comes from hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. So let's wrap this up. God has designed each of us individually with an individual purpose in mind. We can't just sit here. God gave each of us a unique personality in order to reflect the person of Jesus Christ who embodied all of these styles, right? All of them. And he employed them all exquisitely. He confronted people's sin. He taught them deep truth. He testified of the will of his father that people should experience salvation. He related to people interpersonally and he beckoned them toward faith invitationally. All the while serving them with no thought of himself. He didn't just sit there. If that's what Jesus did with his life on this earth, what should we be doing with ours? Jeff West wrote this poignant story that I'll close with entitled Your Neighbor. 
which sad to say is all too true. It says, you know me. I'm the fellow that takes care of your house when you go on vacation. Sometimes we cook out together on Saturday nights and the kids play in the yard. Our wives are good friends. They drink coffee together, trade recipes, and carpool. We talk together often about football and politics and inflation. And we share a lot of the same ambitions and goals. Sometimes we share the same frustrations and disappointments with life. We're a lot alike, me and you. We're both good men. We want the best for our families. We determine to stand against adversity, to try to persevere. We have ideals that we cling to, just as a child clings to an outstretched hand. But sometimes you seem to have more strength than I have. On Sunday morning, I may be in the yard watering the grass as you drive by with your family, all of you dressed in your Sunday best, and you wave at me, and I wave back knowing where you're going, but don't know why. Sometimes it seems that your life is different than mine. Our wives have talked about it, but you and I are scared to mention it. There's a lot about you I don't know. There's an emptiness in my life, a void that I just can't seem to fill no matter how hard I try. It's not solved by casual or free, infrequent invitation to a revival or some special event, I need desperately to be answered, to be comforted, and to know. And I need someone to tell me. But we go on, and I don't mention it because some unknown fear prevents me, and you don't mention it because some unknown power binds you. And we laugh together, and we joke, we share, but not the important things. No, never the important things. Maybe someday, maybe never, I'm your neighbor, and I don't know Jesus. You know, Jesus said the harvest is plentiful. In other words, there are neighbors all around us, you and me, who desperately need Christ, that you are connected with, and are ready to hear about him. When will we share him with them? Because if we're just spiritually sitting here, watching people live and die without ever telling them about Christ, then we're in need of revival ourselves. We're in need of the same Holy Spirit-inspired conviction that the four lepers in 2 Kings experienced. We need to realize that we're not doing right. This is a day of good news, but we're keeping silent. If we wait till the morning light, punishment will overtake us. Now, therefore, come and let us go and tell the king's household. So, let us go. In the way that God has designed each of us, let us go and give them Jesus.